The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders and Paul. We have a great show today, don't you? Don't you agree? I mean, just a marathon episode, but yes, fantastic, just jam packed full of clinical pearls. Well, Paul, the the topic is infectious endocarditis. Our guest is Dr. David Serrata. It is a it is a huge topic, and that's why this is a deluxe episode. So, audience, you're welcome. In advance, you're welcome. <laughs> we tried to get all the questions answered that that we always wanted to know about endocarditis. And, Paul, you know, before we introduce our co-host for this episode, our co-host and producer for this episode, can you please remind the audience, what, what, what do we do on the curbsiders, Paul? What, why are we talking to each other at almost 1030 at night on a weeknight? I mean, this is, I have a lot of parasocial relationships and this is part of them, but also <laughs> we are the internal medicine podcast and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As, as you alluded to, we have the great Dr. David Sirota, who's going to talk us through management of infectious endocarditis, but our, our guide through this process uh, and our producer for the episode and someone who wrote the episode is our, our colleague and hospitalist at the Cashlack Mid-Atlantic Hospital, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Adam Borelski. Adam, how are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm great. Great to be with you guys. We are thrilled to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what we talked about and if there are any pearls that the audience should be keeping their ears perked up for as we go towards the episode. Yeah, this was a wide-ranging episode. We, we really got into the nitty-gritty about infectious endocarditis. We talked about the Duke criteria. We talked about when to use imaging, transthoracic versus transesophageal echoes, who needs surgery, what antibiotics to use. And uh, Dr. Sura even waxed poetic about the poet trial. Which was fantastic and uh, appreciate the pun. Thank you. Uh, we should mention to the audience, this is uh, the first time you've recorded with us. We're happy to have you on the team. We're trying to do more hospital medicine topics and you are helping us helping us with that effort. So we're, we're very glad to have you here. So audience, let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Dr. David Serrata. He is an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. His clinical work includes general infectious diseases, HIV, primary care, and addiction medicine. He is a member of the UM Harm Reduction Research Group, where his research focuses on the treatment of injection drug-associated infections. He is a longtime Kirby, self-proclaimed. Yeah, we're not doing that. I'm sorry. We're not. We're not <laughs> I like I it, David. Endorse you people uh, David, Kirby's. I love it. He is a longtime Kirby, Paul, and I believe that means he's a fan of the curbsiders and excited to provide knowledge food for brain holes far and wide. And uh, I, don't like, I don't like that. <laughs> this, is, is this, this might be the best bio we've ever had on the show. Um, as you can tell, he's a fantastic guest. You should follow him on Twitter. It's at Sorotavirus. And uh, before we get to the main show, Adam, did you want to take a crack at a pun? Well, I just hope that everyone joins us as we duke it out with endocarditis. Duke. Yeah. I'll, I'll just let I, that I one got it. germinate. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're welcome. Yeah, that's great. 
David, it is great to have you here. Long time, like kind of Twitter internet friends, I would say we are, and uh, very glad to have you being featured on the show. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Start with a one-liner and maybe throw in a hobby or interest outside of medicine. Thanks a lot, Matt and Paul and Beth and Adam. It's really awesome to be here. Very long-time listener and very excited to be here. So my one-liner is that I am a 34-year-old man from the extremely deep south of the country, passionate about Staph aureus, HIV, helping people who infect drugs, my wife, Sabrina, and my little puppy, Squiggles. And outside of work, I don't do a whole lot, to be honest, right now. I think uh, taking care of pup is probably most of my free time or just scrolling through my phone and wishing I was doing something better. (laughs) I don't know if that's too uh, dark. (laughs) It sounds like, it sounds like your day-to-day job is, is uh, pretty heavy. You're, you're entitled to some downtime. Sounds good. I mean, you got it. There's a dog named Squiggles in there. Like it's, you're fine. Like it's okay. It's not, you can't be that dark if there's a Squiggles involved. I think that's... I spend a lot. I, I think it was. Jean I'm Paul spending Chartres a lot of time guy. looking and thinking about hobbies that I might be able to get into in the near future. <laughs> Paul, there's like a throwaway line on a Seinfeld where Jerry just like says to George, he's like, I'm "Thinking about getting a yo-yo," and then George is like, "Yeah, I could see that. That's just I feel like <laughs> David's having these conversations with himself uh, on a daily basis, I guess." <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to transition away from here. So I'll ask my my usual question, and David, you don't. Usually, it's just sort of give me a book recommendation. I, I'm open to sort of any piece of um, art or any type of pop media for me to consume. Just anything to really distract me at this point now. So the, the sky's the limit. Just pick something at random that you just enjoyed recently and I so that I can keep myself entertained. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm going to give you a book recommendation. It's a book that almost nobody can read because it's very rare and I have a copy of it. My uh, fellowship program director, Wendy Armstrong, gave it to me when I finished fellowship. It is called The Narcotic Drug Problem, and it's written by Ernest Bishop in the 1920s, actually in 1920. And um, I read it, I browsed it while I was waiting in line to get my COVID vaccine (laughs) times two over the last year. And it's just, um, I think he's a surgeon, but it's a really amazing, like, look at people suffering from addiction from about 100 years ago or 101 years ago. And it's amazing that somebody at that time could have such a um, such forethought about how to help people who are using drugs. So I'm going to read you a quote from a description of the book. So Dr. Bishop tells us that drug users are sick men and not criminals. They ought to receive treatment instead of being sent to jail. Medical, legislative, and popular ideas are all in er- error. He calls for a revolution to wake up the doctors and educate the people. And he goes on to talk about addiction as sort of an ailment that people are suffering from and goes into things like, you know, if you give people with morphine addiction morphine, they seem to do fine, sort of talking about our harm reduction approaches that we use right now. And um, I was just really blown away that all of that, you know, people were thinking of that 100 years ago, yet, you know. Just recently, we have lost 100,000 people to drug overdose deaths in the last year. And there is a summary of the book, which I can um, send a link to, that was published in the American Journal of Public Health in twenty in uh, 1919. So that is accessible to others. Unbelievable. 
It's we're still sorry to be it, a downer. It is, I guess. <laughs> but sometimes no. I, I think there's a cohort of people and doctors now that recognize those things. But it it seems like it took way too long for us to get to this point where uh, we are viewing this as a not as a moral failure, but as a disease that people are suffering from that needs help and needs it needs to or can be treated with with opioids. You know, uh, rather than forcing people into abstinence from that, which, you know, has been tried and doesn't work. Did you have any sort of, you know, I'm sure you've had more than one failure in your life, uh, despite uh, having achieved great things. I'm sure you've had some failures. So any, any specific failures along the way that you wanted to mention to the audience? Uh, Yeah, I guess, you know, I probably not correct to call it a failure, but I'm going to sort of tell you about a mental health episode that I had as a resident, which was just having really severe anxiety as an intern that sort of came to a head when I was doing my first stint on night float uh, intern year. And I ended up having like a really bad panic attack. I ended up in the ER where I was supposed to actually be admitting patients at that time. And, um, you know, it was sort of something bad that happened to me that really turned my life around in a lot of ways. And I um, got connected to really great psychological and psychiatric help. And I think it made me a much more open person about my emotions, especially at work, where I feel like I've been taught or modeled to not at all show emotion. So, you know, I remember my first day as an attending, I walked in and it was like, I am extremely nervous. I just want you all to know that <laughs> this is my first day as an attending. You know, I might start crying, but <laughs> please just take care of me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like half of the room was like visiting med students from Latin America who were just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> um, but I think I've, I've tried to model that for other learners and people that I work with now. And I, I think people tend to appreciate, you know, hearing the person in charge uh, talk about their self-doubt and their emotions in any difficult situation. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. That's certainly something that a couple other great guests on the show have also shared their own, you know, mental health struggles and uh, the listeners and uh, us as hosts have found that very meaningful. And uh, I think it's great that we are now in a culture where it is pretty common or becoming more and more common for people to, you know, admit, admit that they have suffered with various mental health uh, ailments. And I think it's really good for society that we're just starting to have empathy for ourselves and each other uh, and just acknowledging that this is a normal thing. Uh, so thank you. Hey, Curbsiders. I wanted to tell you about some very exciting job opportunities in Southern California. I mean, right now it's winter on the East Coast. Who doesn't want to consider this? Well, Southern California Permanente Medical Group is a physician-led partnership organization with a patient-centered and evidence-based approach to high-quality medicine. They are actively seeking outpatient internal medicine physicians that want to join their clinics throughout the Southern California area. You will enjoy a fulfilling practice that's free from the hassles of running your own office, trying to develop a patient base, doing prior auths, and the insurance and billing, you know all this stuff. They want you to benefit from such a great place to practice. You're going to have backup support, no overnight call, 
flexible scheduling, and work-life balance or work-life fit, whatever you like to call it. And if you're interested in teaching, they do have some teaching opportunities and maybe even some outpatient and inpatient roles available. So it's time to give them a call. Why should you consider SCPMG? That's right, Southern California Permanente Medical Group, SCPMG. Well, they have dozens of locations throughout Southern California from Bakersfield to LA to San Diego. And, you know, it's a great career destination. So if you want to make a difference in a community that appreciates your passion and expertise, then join SCPMG as an outpatient internal medicine physician. You can learn more or apply at scpmgphysiciancareers.com. That's scpmgphysiciancareers.com or call 866-449-1684. Well, I think we should get into a case from Cashlack, and who better to read that to us, Paul, than Dr. Adam Borelsky. Okay. So today, we're rounding on the wards at uh, Cashlack Satellite Campus and seeing Mr. Enzo Carditis. Mr. Enzo Carditis is a 30-year-old man who is admitted overnight for a week of fevers, rigors, and fatigue. On exam, his temperature is 101 degrees Fahrenheit, heart rate is 110, blood pressure is 105 over 60. He appears uncomfortable with occasional rigors. Cardiac exam uh, has a three out of six systolic murmur at the left upper sternal border. So just to start with some basic questions, David, um, how do you think of endocarditis and when should we worry about it? Thank you, Adam, for the case. It is basically infection of the heart. It just sounds so <laughs> sounds so rough. <laughs> when you put it that way, it sounds bad. Is it bad? <laughs> no, but uh, it is bad. It's a horrible, horrible infection. And officially, it's kind of infection of any of the endocardial structures of the heart. So we most commonly think of the valves, but can also include the atria, ventricles, thrombus in the heart, papillary muscles any congenital anomalies that are going on in the heart, septal defects. And so any sort of infection of those things we consider endocarditis. And I think most of the time we're talking about valvular endocarditis. That's by far the most common thing we see. Sometimes that can sort of progress to invading onto other surrounding structures of the heart, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later. And sort of the pathophysiology of it is that you know, you have a valve that's nice and smooth and shiny, like the back of a porpoise. And over time, it gets eroded and debris is hitting it. And there's high pressure, especially on the left side of the heart, and that uh, damages it. And you get platelets that stick onto it and fibrin. And so really, the sort of common denominator of endocarditis is this research predecessor preceding lesion called uh, non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis, which is basically like a little clot on the edge of the valve. And then the uh, things that happen in our life, whether it's brushing our teeth, flossing, having a GI malignancy, injecting drugs, whatever it may be, uh, leads to bacteria getting in and around that clotted blood, which is sort of like you know candy bars for bacteria. And they jump onto it, they chew it up and proliferate. And I, I always kind of describe it as, you know, the media we use to grow bacteria in the lab is basically coagulated blood. It's like the thing that bacteria love the most. And so that's why it's so dangerous to have this sort of preceding lesion and why it leads to infection. 
So the symptoms are really nonspecific, uh, which is why you really need to do a lot of the diagnostics we'll talk about today to make the diagnosis. And the, the really like pathognomonic findings, physical exam findings are not very common. So typically, fever is the thing that is sort of the, the most common symptom that people present with. And then the sort of cluster of other B symptoms like night sweats, weight loss, anorexia, rigors are also very common. Um, I think another way to think about it is when you have another condition and you have fever, I kind of consider these like the fever plus syndromes. So you have someone who comes in with a stroke and fever, could be endocarditis. Someone who comes in with new onset heart failure and a fever can be a sign of endocarditis. You know, vision change, acute vision change and fever, and then anything like low back pain or joint pain, like monoarticular arthritis and a fever you know, you're going to be doing blood cultures. And, and I think that'll kind of get you to the next step. Oh, can we go back to the pathophysiology? Because I may not have thought about it in this way before. And, I, and I'm interested. So it, I want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So even before infection of the valve has to occur, it sounds like there has to be some sort of pre-existing damage typically. Is that and that's the mechanistically what we think is going on? Do I understand that correctly? Yes. So there's basically damage to the valve from a number of different pathologies. Um, you know, there's the injection drug use pathology, which we'll talk about as a later today, probably, where you have sort of particulate matter that's primarily hitting the right side of the, the heart. And then um, on the left side of the heart, there's higher pressure, and that tends to lead to more turbulent flow, which uh, I'm told can damage valves as well. And um, you also tend to have more valve degradation over time, calcification on the left side of the heart things like bicuspid valve as well, you'll see more commonly. My question was along similar lines. I I think this is just a function of like where I've practiced maybe, but my experience with endocarditis has almost purely been with injection drug use. And but when you when you read about it, like native valve endocarditis, it's that's maybe like 10% or something of cases. It's so it seems like most of the cases are coming from something else. Do you I don't know if you have those numbers offhand, but what do you what do you think are some of the more common scenarios that someone's going to be at risk at risk for this? Yeah, so I think the most common underlying conditions are really predisposing valvulopathy of of any kind and like rheumatic um, heart. Yes, rheumatic heart disease, um, bicuspid aortic valve, any I don't know. You might probably know better than me. What are the things that cause like aortic stenosis mm -hmm. to happen? Um, and and then things like having cardiac devices, having recent invasive procedures, having dental disease. These are all kind of things. I guess those would be things that lead to bacteremia, but not necessarily to the valve damage. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the best kind of epidemiology we have on endocarditis is this study from 2009 Archives of Internal Medicine, and it has like over 2,500 patients around the globe and so in that cohort, which, you know, is like 12 years ago, 10% uh, were injection drug use, 32% had a native valve predisposition, and 27% had an invasive procedure in the last 60 days as sort of their predisposing factor. I think I've seen a lot of patients with uh, end-stage renal disease as well who, who have it. So just anything where you're having uh, metal stuck into your bloodstream on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. David, as is often the case, I, I think we're we're at the diagnosis before we've talked to the patient, um, which is what we do during the curbsiders. But I'm wondering if before we actually get to the diagnosis, which we're presumptive because we all read the title of the episode, 
if we could take a step back and we're still under suspicion here, could you just sort of talk us through, are there any other questions? You mentioned some of the B symptoms. Are there any other historical questions that are especially important to you? And then also, I know there's about 27,000 physical examination findings associated with endocarditis. So we might get to them with some of the diagnostic criteria, but can you tell us some of the, the particularly high yield or the ones that we should at least be able to know about to impress our attendings and ID colleagues? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think as far as the history, the symptoms are not going to get you too far as far as getting a diagnosis beyond what we've sort of said already. I think the sort of ID exposure, social history things to think about are uh, doing a really good prosthetic material history. So I always sort of ask patients if there's anything inside their body that they were not born with, and that could be metal screws, plates, joints, what have you, asking about if they've had recent procedures, which, you know, seems obvious, but sometimes people don't mention, oh, yeah, I had, a, you know, all my teeth pulled two <laughs> days ago. Having uh, drug use, obviously, is an important thing to ask about in a uh, culturally competent way. Um, and then, you know, you have your kind of weird ID exposure. So were you birthing farm animals lately? Were you drinking unpasteurized dairy products? Were you petting kitties and puppies? Were you taking pond water and injecting it into your veins or, you know, all of the kind of crazy things the that, usual stuff. Um, yeah. that can lead. Tuesday night. Exactly. <laughs> uh, as far as physical exams, so extremely boring, but fever is your best physical exams finding here. So 96% of people who have endocarditis are going to have fever at the beginning of their hospitalization. Um, new or worsening murmur is seen in in more than half of people. So that's kind of your next step. If you're going to do like the, you know, surgery, 6 a.m. Uh, physical exam, <laughs> just check the vitals, listen to the heart, get out of there. You you can look at all of the other fancy things that you will be an excellent third-year medical student on rounds when you say that there's no Osler nodes, Janeway lesions, Roth spots, because you brought your otoscope to the wards, like always. Sorry, ophthalmoscope to the wards. I don't even know which <laughs> one is for which. Yeah, yeah, got and, it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we call it, yeah. Yeah, the one for looking in the eyeball. Um, so, in general, you know, from this this uh, epidemiologic study from a couple of years ago, those sort of classic endocarditis signs are seen at, at most in about 5% of patients. So, you could imagine if you've seen 20 people for endocarditis, uh, one of them might have like a Janeway lesion. So good to look for, but maybe not super uh, sensitive. All right. So the murmur, pay attention to the murmur for murmurs, especially if they're new. And then the fever, uh, it, people with fevers and a new murmur, that's that could be suspicious. Yeah. I will. I uh, I do look in everybody's conjunctiva. Yeah. Pers- this is a personal experience that has been like the the thing that I've the place I've found these signs most frequently in my life, my short career. Um, and then I look at everyone's fingernails and their hands and feet. And then I think for any kind of bacteremia situation, it's always important to try to uh, access someone's back and give them a good uh, percussion down the spine. That's great. Yeah. So that's so that's a pretty good description of the physical physical exam for this. We talked about some of the specific like risk factors or things that might have might have occurred that would make us think endocarditis. Uh, so to make sure you take that farm animal history, Paul, when you're talking to to these these patients every time, no matter what I think the diagnosis is. Yeah. All right, uh, Adam, do you want to read us the next part of the case? Um, absolutely. And I think David's a little bit prescient here because 
On the next part of the case, we're still on rounds and we get paged with a critical lab value um, that Mr. Carditis's blood cultures from admission are growing gram-positive cocci in two out of four bottles. David, what should we do when we get this call? So I think if this is someone where you you have a, a reasonable suspicion for endocarditis and you're seeing what you would expect to see in a vast majority of cases, which is gram-positive cocci in the bloodstream, I think this sort of warrants a, a deeper investigation for, for endocarditis. As far as treatment, you know, at this point, we would probably just start vancomycin and and see if we got any rapid diagnostic test back from the lab that told us exactly what the uh, species was, which might help you tailor your antibiotics a little bit better. But I think in general, the sort of diagnostic criteria, let's say, for blood cultures for people with endocarditis is to check three sets of blood cultures. Um, That's sort of the most classic teaching. This person already had four, which is great. So a set, just as a reminder, is usually one stick into the arm that fills up an anaerobic bottle and an aerobic bottle, and that's called one set. So two sets would be, you know, sticking someone in both arms and taking four bottles total of blood. And then um, the third set is recommended to be done at least an hour after those other two sets. So, you know, I wouldn't get too, too held up on the details, but the main point is you want you know, six total bottles, three sets of blood cultures done, you know, over the day. Usually it's like you could do one set every couple hours or two at once and then one a couple a little bit later. The main point being just that the nature of bacteremia is that it's not always, you know, consistent, pure, e- e- even level of bacteremia at all times. It sort of comes in spurts and can have high grade, low grade, and um, you may actually have negative cultures at some times when you check the blood. With the timing of this, I guess what's confusing about if you're if you're checking three sets over an hour and you have this patient that's that's coming in febrile and you're like at which point do you start the antibiotics? Do you have to get like if you saw this person in the emergency department, you're drawing two sets then and planning to get a third set? Like if you're thinking this could be endocarditis from the start, and would you start antibiotics before that third set is drawn, or would you would you uh, wait till after the third set? You know, I've never thought about that, to be honest. I, I would probably start antibiotics after you get your first two sets and then draw, yeah. you know, a, late, a little bit later in the day. Um, I guess it's like if the, they have endocarditis, the, like, I, I, anyway, staph endocarditis, it's like, it's it's not that easy to clear it. Like that, the, the third set's probably going to be positive, I guess. Exactly. We'll, we'll get to the due criteria, I think, a little bit later, but one of the hallmarks of endocarditis is really high-grade, persistent, positive blood cultures, often despite, you know, a week of antibiotics. And so uh, I'm not too worried about about an hour of antibiotics, um, especially if you've already gotten two sets prior to antibiotics. I think the other uh, things to consider at this point would be to get um, some echocardiography done, uh, which I think we'll also talk in a little bit later on in more detail. The, you know, main pieces of the puzzle here are just sort of getting an assessment of what organs might be involved. So you've already done your excellent physical exam. You've brought out your otoscope slash ophthalmoscope. (laughs) And, you know, I find this is a personal experience, I think, especially in people who inject drugs. I found that um, a non-contrast CT of the chest is helpful because you'll often see septic emboli to the lung that may not be apparent on a a regular x-ray. 
And then you might also see splenomegaly, which is present in, um, you know, uh, 11% of people with endocarditis. As far as labs, I think kind of the basic stuff that you'd be getting in the ER, uh, checking like urine uh, protein and microscopy is useful just because there is a relatively high rate of glomerulonephritis. And there's some risk scores that we might mention that, you know, use CRP. I think that's a little bit more of like a European thing, but I've checked it now and again. And there's also a little bit of debate as far as brain imaging. So, you know, if you get like an MRI on every person with endocarditis who comes through the door, there's actually a a really high rate, like over 70% rate of finding something abnormal. Um, The debate is sort of, does it matter? Does it change management? Or does it just, you know, complicate things? But there are some people who, who as a routine get, get brain MRI with people coming in with, I guess that would be more after a diagnosis of endocarditis, maybe not pre-diagnosis. I was in, I was intrigued to hear that and read, read that I should say. And I saw, I saw it in your slides and I read it. It wasn't a practice that I guess that I have seen. Again, this is just a sampling bias. Adam, is that something that you've commonly seen in your career that people getting MRI, even if they're asymptomatic patients with, uh, endocarditis? No, I, I really haven't. Yeah. Because it, it seems like it'd be, one, my hesitancy there would just be to, like, you're going to tell the patient, yeah, you have no symptoms, but uh, I saw something in your brain. Don't right. worry about it. <laughs> it's like, what it, that that would be my, the, the downside. I don't know, Paul, what, you're, you're yeah, nodding 100%. vigorously. No, I, I don't see the neuroimaging done until it becomes perhaps clinically relevant. If there's a change in mental status that is not otherwise, as makes, or like focal neurologic deficits or something where you're concerned for septic embolization, that's when I see the neuroimaging done, but not, not just as a matter of course, because exactly like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, other than, yeah, make the patient anxious and then worry yourself. We do have some antibiotics that have, at least traditionally, more CNS penetration. There's also a little bit of a debate of, like, you know, if you have a mycotic aneurysm, do you need something that, quote, crosses the blood-brain barrier um, if it's sort of an infection of the blood vessel? So it's kind of a can of worms that, you know, some choose to just not open <laughs> <laughs> unless there's a symptom. <laughs> Leave the worms in the can. Walk away. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Understood. Hey, curbsiders. Are you cornered by medical billing woes or just need a better deal? Is the Medicare Quality Payment Program a concern? Our sponsor today, P3 Healthcare Solutions, is a healthcare vendor that addresses both these areas of concern. P3 is a revenue cycle management provider that takes over your workload for your claim submissions and denial management. Who doesn't need that? And if you're getting turned down by insurances lately, you need P3 Healthcare Solutions to address your challenges, and they're going to boost your monthly revenue. Accompanied by a transparent reporting mechanism, P3 ensures that your practice is on the right track. And another matter of urgency is the quality payment program, which needs to be submitted to Medicare every year. Well, failure to report carries a 9% penalty and a loss of up to 7% incentive on Medicare Part B reimbursements. P3 Healthcare is a qualified registry, training practices with 100% success since 2015. So, reporting is made easy and burden-free for clinicians. So right now, P3 is offering a 10% discount on all invoices for a limited time period. Visit www.p3care.com slash curb. That's www.p3care.com slash curb and get started today. Well, 
tell us a little bit more about um, the so the blood cultures here. I mean, this this person has positive blood cultures, and you mentioned vancomycin as as an initial choice. But what else is what are some common things we might get back when that blood culture turns positive, and how might that change your thinking, like GPCs versus other things you might see? So, yeah, I think we're still here just to orient myself. We're sort of still in the kind of pre-infective endocarditis diagnosis period. So, so yeah, when it comes to what organisms cause endocarditis, 75% are, are gram-positive cocci and staph aureus is, um, I should say, the epidemiology changes a little bit depending on sort of what subgroup you're looking at. So people who inject drugs, Staph aureus is most common in people who have like no underlying valve disease. Uh, Staph aureus and kind of oral strep are most common. And then in prosthetic valve endocarditis, you see more um, enterococci and coag-negative staph. Short answer is give them all vanco to begin with for the most part, unless you have your uh, rapid diagnostic test back. And Adam, you were mentioning beforehand that, you know, in your in your travels in the Cashlack hospital system, you've come across some patients that are, maybe they're not meeting full criteria. We're going to talk about the criteria here, but can you talk about maybe give like one of those hypotheticals patients that, that uh, don't necessarily have endocarditis, but that have you thinking about it? Maybe David can speak to how we can suss out whether or not they really have it. Sure. Yeah. A, a couple come to mind. Um, Recently, when I was at the Cashlack satellite campus, we had a patient who had four out of four bottles of efecalis on blood culture, and um, he came in with a fever and he was altered. And as soon as we got those back, I was concerned about it. We ended up getting a TTE and echo, and it came back negative, and his cultures cleared. So we felt comfortable treating him for. Uh, uncomplicated efecalis bacteremia. But it was definitely one of these things that I immediately thought, I want to make sure I'm not missing endocarditis because that's going to definitely change the way that I'm thinking about um, treating this this patient. Yeah, I think kind of applies to a lot of infectious disease, but you always want to be able to fall asleep at night on your pillow <laughs> with comfort that you can sort of tell yourself a good story about what happened with this patient. Um, so just like random guy with no medical problems and four out of four enterococcus fecalis, I wouldn't sleep super easily until, you know, not to say that he does or doesn't have endocarditis, but, um, I think having a clear and sort of succinct explanation for things is, makes the risk of endocarditis or likelihood a, a bit lower. So, you know, has uh, all this genitourinary issues and renal stone and whatnot, um, you know, as if you can't find a source that is in a lot of these risk scores and just, you know, qualitatively, uh, my experience, the lack of known source is sort of a pretty high risk factor for endocarditis. I see. Because I, I do think that comes up a lot where you get the patient that's bacteremic, but you know, they had like urinary tract infection that grew the same bacteria that was in the blood and you're pretty comfortable, you know, not, oh, not chasing, not chasing down endocarditis too hard in those patients. But this is, uh, yeah, this is something that comes up. So what, can you talk a little bit about how you make, make a firm diagnosis? Like what do we have to do for, for Mr. Young Enzo here? He's only 30 years old, Paul. He's a young man. 
It's got a great Very name. Very young, practically a child. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> Enzo, aside from the name that pretty much tips us off and the fact that this is an endocarditis episode, like we we have two of four positive cultures. He's got a murmur. He has a fever. We're, we're thinking about this, but what would clinch the diagnosis here? So I think the next step would be echocardiography. The the really the next step or the next question that always comes up is sort of what to do um, with a negative transthoracic echo or how good is a transthoracic echo for identifying endocarditis. And um, it really depends, as everything does in infectious disease. Um, in this case, I kind of think of three kind of factors to consider. So one, which I think we've been talking about a lot, is really establishing in your head a pretest probability that this person could have endocarditis based on their situation, based on their organism, based on their their labs and vitals and whatnot. Again, if it's super high, you know, a million out of a million <laughs> staph aureus and they have fever and no valve function on uh, uh, transthoracic, then that's probably a, a pretty good test. The other piece of this is the quality of the transthoracic echo. So, you know, all are not created equal. We have ones where it's like, you know, everything, it says poor quality on every valve, which is not very encouraging. And then it says, you know, no evidence of endocarditis does not rule out endocarditis at the bottom. There is, you know, some research on this where if you use a very strict negative transthoracic echo criteria, um, and there's sort of a list of criterion, but it's sort of like, no more than minor valvulopathy at any valve, like absolutely nothing stone cold, abnormal, stone cold normal, that that is pretty good at ruling out endocarditis. And um, the, the third piece of this is a little bit what side of the heart do you think that the, the lesion is going to be on? So in our patients who inject drugs, most commonly it's right-sided endocarditis, though not always. And the transthoracic echo is a lot better at looking at right-sided lesions than left. Still misses stuff on the right. And again, you're sort of limited by the quality of the study as well. So, you know, I think the, again, if you have sort of a stone-cold normal, perfect transthoracic echo, it does have sort of a pretty good negative likelihood ratio. But with something high-risk like Staph aureus bacteremia would still generally recommend a transesophageal. And then the other situation that we haven't talked about much is when we're talking about prosthetic valves. And so I think there's general agreement that those patients need a transesophageal echo just because the transthoracic views are not as good when there's a prosthetic valve in place. I hadn't, uh, actually, I hadn't made that dis- the distinction before. That's That's useful to know. So you, yeah, same thing with like a cardiac device, like a pacemaker, mm-hmm. ICD. Generally, transesophageal is recommended. So, so we got our cultures. <gasps> we thought about CT chest. We we talked about the echo and or the TEE. We talked about the MRI brain, urinalysis for protein, CRP, and then tell us about this rheumatoid factor and how does that play into the Duke criteria. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, it's a little like you can be a fancy third-year med student on rounds and recommend it. It, uh, I I have a patient right now where it's positive. Uh, They have a giant vegetation and positive blood culture, so it didn't change anything. But um, there is a pretty high rate of positive rheumatoid factor in patients with endocarditis. It's a lot more classically in people with like the, I don't know, like Netter book, subacute bacterial endocarditis, like 
you know, old man or guy with like dental issue that um, we don't personally, I've seen like once in my career, to be honest, that that presentation, but that sort of more prolonged and indolent presentation has a higher association with positive rheumatoid factor. And it, it counts as one of your immunologic phenomenon in the Duke criteria. So, which I can tell you. Yeah, about. yeah. Tell us about that. Cause this guy, um, are we going to give him a, before we get to that, Adam, does this guy have a vegetation? You want to read that next part of the case and then we could talk about the Duke he, criteria? He, yeah, he, he definitely will. Um, can I, can I ask one clarifying question about the echocardiography though, before we do that, David? Yes. Because this comes up a lot where we have patients that have Staph aureus bacteremia. We do our compulsory transthoracic echo. It's negative. They clear cultures. Do, are we obligated? Am I obligated to get a transesophageal echo in patients with Staph aureus bacteremia, even with kind of a, a lower pretest probability? Um, I would say that is a area of debate. Um, there's some schools of thought that would say, no, you can't. Well, people would say you can't, quote, rule out endocarditis without a transesophageal echo in people with Staph aureus bacteremia. Others would say that you can, like in a case where there's a very low pretest probability. I kind of fall into that camp in certain situations, like, you know, hospital onset, catheter, like a central line associated bacteremia. We know that that has a pretty relatively low rate of, uh, of, of endocarditis. That would be sort of termed nosocomial staph aureus bacteremia. So no, I don't think, um, I think there are some situations where I would be okay with only giving a, getting a transthoracic echo. Um, another piece that plays into this is sort of how is it going to change your management if you know that endocarditis is there? Um, so that goes, gets into things like length of treatment, um, which oftentimes people with Staph aureus bacteremia have some other indication for a long course of antibiotic treatment already. Hey, Curbsiders. I'm excited to tell you about a brand new sponsor here on the show, Imperfect Foods. Maybe you heard about them on other podcasts. I was super intrigued to try this product because it reduces food waste. And my kids will tell you, I hate wasting food. Imperfect Foods is going to save you time on grocery shopping and you're going to eat more fresh and delicious foods because did you know that 35% of the food supply goes unsold or uneaten in the U.S., which is just, it's just heartbreaking. And what Imperfect Foods does, they can source foods that would otherwise fall through the cracks of our food system. So here's a bit more about how it works. They are a grocery delivery service that offer an entire line of of sustainable groceries that taste delicious and reduce waste. You're going to get fresh, seasonal produce, pantry staples, and yummy snacks. They'll arrive at your house on the same day each week. And the best part is customers save like six to eight pounds of food with every order that would have otherwise gone to waste. And I am so excited because I just placed my very first order at Imperfect Foods. It was super easy to sign up. And they're going to deliver it right to my house this Monday after the holiday weekend because I'm not going to feel like cooking. It's vacation, baby. Right now, Imperfect Foods is offering our listeners 20% off their first four orders when they go to imperfectfoods.com and use the promo code CURB. Again, that's 20% off your first four orders. That's up to an $80 value at imperfectfoods.com when you use the promo code CURB. So join the movement at imperfectfoods.com and use the code CURB. 
Can I ask just a super fundamental question? I'll, I'll, I'll play my role as the, the dumbest smart guy in the room or vice versa. <laughs> but I guess when when should infectious disease be involved in this case? Like, do we have to wait until there's a gigantic um, veg on the heart valve if you have some of the right risk factors and you, you see the gram positive? Like, I think in cash like North Northeast, if you have staph aureus bacteremia, that almost automatically triggers an ID consult, if I'm not mistaken. And that may be the practice in a lot of places. But I guess... I feel like there are certain recommendations from professional societies as to when to involve ID. And I know it's going to vary from patient to patient, but as a general rule, when should we get our experts involved? Yeah, I think staph aureus bacteremia is, is pretty um, well established as a, a good indication to get your ID doctor on board. You know, let's say, I think if you're in a situation like Adam was where you have positive blood cultures and you're not really sure where it came from, that's a great time to get ID involved. If you have made a diagnosis of endocarditis, absolutely get ID involved. Um, and then I think we are also sort of very often brought on when the transthoracic echo has been negative, but there's still sort of a, a high suspicion of endocarditis and people sort of want ID to nudge one way or the other as to whether or not to get a transesophageal echo. So we get our transthoracic on Enzo and I guess we're lucky or he's unlucky. We're lucky. He's unlucky. I don't know how you term this, but he has a vegetation that we can see on his aortic valve. So we call you and, you know, can you talk about the, the Duke criteria? Like does, does he now, he, he now fully meets the two major, right? He's got a vegetation and, and he's had uh, positive blood cultures, but can you talk us through the Duke criteria a little bit? Yeah, so the Duke criteria are a way to sort of help us risk stratify or, you know, determine if we think someone has a good enough chance of having endocarditis. I think, you know, taking a step back, like people come in, they have bacteremia or they're sick, they either have endocarditis or they don't. And it's just a matter of can we detect it and do we make the right guess when we, you know, put all of our tests together? You know, the, the definitive way to diagnose endocarditis is, which is actually one of the uh, pathological Duke criteria is, you know, taking the valve out and scraping it and getting bacteria on it, um, which obviously we can't do in people. So this is sort of a, a backhanded way to get as close to that as possible. And so like any kind of criteria or risk score, it's been developed over eons and millennia and has been validated in some way, which I uh, don't know the details about, but, um, you know, I follow it. And the the main criteria, so that there's basically major and minor criteria. There's a, a different couple of different menu permutations that you can do to get a diagnosis of what's called definite infective endocarditis. So you your major criteria, primarily, you can say blood culture criteria and echo evidence criteria. Within blood culture and as a aside, I generally look this up like all the time. So it's uh, <laughs> I'm so reading it off a That's piece great. of paper here as well. I mean, I know the general like strokes of it, but if you actually, I just actually learned something today when I was reading the really teeny tiny font in it, um, just about the little nuances for each organism. But the general gist of it, which I think is all that you really need to memorize, is if you have these sort of super classic endocarditis organisms. Staph aureus, some of the strep that are associated with, you know, the med school subacute bacterial endocarditis, um, the the famous Hasek organisms. Uh, those are 
that definitely is a, a slam dunk for the blood culture criteria. And the echo findings um, are a vegetation, an abscess, new regurgitation, or a dehiscence of a prosthetic valve. And then in the minor criteria, we have five things. So the first is a predisposing heart condition or injection drug use. Uh, the second is fever. The third is a vascular phenomena. So that would include any sort of metastatic site of infection. So septic emboli is kind of the thing we most commonly see in the right. Mycotic aneurysms, Janeway lesions, some of the other kind of more esoteric findings. And then number four is immunologic phenomenon. So this is where you have your fancy rheumatoid factor, where you have your otoscope that you're looking in somebody's eye with to find Roth spots and then being told that you should use your ophthalmoscope. <laughs> you have your glomerulonephritis and your Osler's nodes. And then number five is like a, is called minor blood culture or serological criteria. So this would be if you had like a Bartonella serology that's positive. And I can kind of tell you the different combos. So you can have two major, slam dunk, one major, three minor, or five minor. Um, and then you can get a diagnosis of possible endocarditis if you have sort of less than those combinations. All right, David. So Enzo, we are confident in his diagnosis of endocarditis. So can you just talk us through your general management approach to patients with endocarditis? Yeah. So I think there's kind of three uh, components that I would think about. I think the first piece is working to get your blood cultures to be sterilized, you know, besides just sort of making us happy, that's sort of evidence that you're making some progress on treating this infection. And, and that's sort of determined by picking the right antibiotic, picking the right dose, and most importantly, uh, actually doing repeat blood cultures, which often is just not done or forgotten, or they get ordered and, you know, they don't get drawn. So got to repeat blood cultures, because that's really one of our our main currencies in, in figuring out how successful we're being with treatment. The other piece of this is looking for complications of endocarditis that need source control. So looking for metastatic sites of infection, either by symptoms or by imaging, um, looking for some of the complications in the heart that can happen. And then the last piece is sort of keeping an eye out to see whether your patient might have a, a surgical indication for endocarditis. I know for different types of bacteria, maybe there's a little bit of different practice, but like how often are you going to get blood cultures, repeat blood cultures for Enzo with his Staph aureus bacteremia? And when would you stop getting them? I would try to get two. This is uh, my personal approach. Maybe not. I'm not sure exactly what it says in the guidelines about this, but I would try to get two sets each day, like daily for at least the first couple of days. You know, we know that even clearing blood culture, whether you clear blood cultures on one day, two days, three days, all of that actually has some prognostic impact on your mortality in Staph aureus bacteremia, especially. So it's sort of a, a pretty pretty smooth gradient of days of positive blood cultures and risk of mortality. I think, you know, there's a point where like, you know, day four, if they're just positive within a couple of hours of being drawn that I would usually spread it out uh, every 48 to 72 hours. Always try to draw two at a time. Again, just one negative is usually not enough to really make me feel comfortable that we have cleared the bacteremia. So it's always good to have two. Um, where if you know, you know, pe people, these patients are often very sick in the hospital for a long time, and it can be difficult to get blood. 
So you can also just do, you know, one blood culture daily instead of doing two every 48 hours or something like that. But that's generally my approach. Uh, you know, I, I have had patients who have been bacteremic for weeks at a time. And at some point you just kind of say, okay, this is the most tippy top, most severe that could possibly exist. So, you know, we'll just check like every once a week or mm-hmm. something. And then when they, but that's pretty once uncommon. They, once you think you have a negative culture, you know, do you keep getting them for the next like 72 hours just to make sure that that negative isn't going to turn positive? Because sometimes they, sometimes there's a delay in them turning positive. And so how many days do you go on once you get that first culture you think is negative? I will say, I think because of that delay, oftentimes you will already have two negative sets, right? Because you, you get one on day one and then day three, you get another one and the one from day one is negative, the day one from day three is negative. I don't have a strong opinion. I think th- there is a sort of skip phenomenon, which uh, is most described with Staph aureus bacteremia, where they can be sort of intermittently positive. And so I think some people would recommend, you know, at least two days with negative blood cultures, depending on the situation and clinical improvement, I'd be okay with just, you know, two sets negative. Okay. So that's that seems like it that that seems like good practice and then if if you need any further nuance beyond that you'll probably have an ID physician following with you and they'll probably tell you when to stop getting the blood cultures but that's been something that you know people people ask like for various types of bacteremia when do you stop getting when when can you stop getting the daily blood cultures or do you always need to get the daily yeah. blood cultures yeah ID doctors are really hard to to satisfy i think <laughs> it's either on rounds what are they doing? They haven't gotten blood culture for days or, oh my God, they got blood cultures every day this weekend. What are they thinking? They're killing this person. <laughs> this explains <laughs> so why it's it, so confusing to me from the outside. I don't know, Adam, is that your experience too? It's totally my experience. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So you, so you told us as you were about to talk about like getting to surgery, like who might need surgery. I think that was part. So you said, we're going to try to get them sterilized going to repeat the blood cultures. We just talked a little bit about when we think we can stop. So probably at least, you know, 48 hours of negative blood cultures, maybe. And if it's staph aureus before you stop getting them, you're going to look for sites of metastatic infection that might need source control. And then what's, you know, how do you decide if, if this person needs surgery? I think that's where you said you were going as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to get cardiothoracic surgery to consult as soon as you make the diagnosis of endocarditis. Um, I think there's kind of four main buckets of people that generally would recommend surgery. The first is sort of the most obvious, which is like a mechanical complication that really antibiotics don't fix. So if your valve has a hole in it and is, you know, flapping in the wind, antibiotics don't sew that back together and make it work again. (laughs) Same thing for, um, you know, if you have uh, pus that is invading the conduction system of the heart and leading to third degree heart block, that's something that antibiotics, for the most part, will not take care of, at least in a timely manner. The second category are kind of organism specific. So these are organisms that antibiotics just don't really kill very well. So that would include things like fungal endocarditis, some would say prosthetic valve endocarditis should be a strong uh, consideration of surgery, multidrug resistant gram negatives, mycobacteria, kind of a lot of the weird stuff in there. Number three would be what's a little bit hard to define, but I kind of call it, quote, antibiotic failure, which is just that, you know, you're giving this person 
vancomycin. The organism is sensitive. It's the right drug, the right dose. You don't find any other source of infection, and they just continue to have positive blood cultures. And um, I think that one is a little bit hard to to swing and get people surgery for. I think we, for whatever reason, um, we put a lot of faith in our antibiotics. Um, you know, like you would never sort of say a statin failed if someone had a, a heart attack after having a first heart attack and being on a statin, but we sort of demand 100% efficacy from our antibiotics. And and that's just too much to ask, even if everything is right. So that's definitely something I've seen, especially with Staph aureus. And then I think the other piece is also a little bit more in the gray area, which is sort of the potential for kind of catastrophic complications if embolization continues. And this is also, it's a little bit of a, I don't know, catch-22 in that you sort of wait longer, more emboli happen, which means you kind of don't need to do the surgery anymore. So I think there's a sort of very delicate balance and uh, dance that happens. And so it's just important to, I think, have verbal conversations with your cardiac surgeons and, and just make sure that everybody is on the same page. I wanted to ask about the the duration of antibiotics. Now there's, of course, like... Based on the organism, there's going to be different agents that you choose. But can you talk a little bit about um, the duration? Like, is it is it four weeks? Is it six weeks? Uh, how come it's different? <laughs> Tell and us what to do, David. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes there's uh, yeah, and and we're going to talk. Yeah, we'll, we'll, so let's let's start with that, and then we can ease into the oral versus IV question. Um, I think you know this is something where very much like. Just I tend to just follow the guidelines for the most part. Staph aureus is really bad. That's why we give it six weeks. Also, most people who have Staph aureus will have, you know, osteomyelitis or something else where you might be giving six weeks of antibiotics as well. Strep are really bad also, but they're easier to kill in general, I guess, with antibiotics. And so that's why typically that's treated with four weeks. And then there's sort of like a, you know, rare circumstance that I've never actually personally seen done where you can treat strep endocarditis with two weeks if you include an immunoglycoside. Enterococci are kind of more fall into the middle range. So they say like four to six weeks if you're using certain regimen, six weeks if you're using another antibiotic regimen. But, you know, ultimately we're kind of like parsing the difference between four or six weeks for yeah. pretty much all of these infections. The length is nothing special and nothing that's been you know studied in a robust uh, randomized controlled trial to say exactly 42 days from negative blood cultures is correct, not 43, not 41. But I guess it's sort of a orphan uh, scientific question that <laughs> I don't think is being sure. tackled Like right aspirin now. dosing, we'll never know. Is it 81? Is it 85? There's just... There's no way sure. if you're in Europe. Yeah, and I think in general, so the I think one thing that always kind of weirded me out about endocarditis guidelines is you start like seeing aminoglycoside all over the place, whereas, you know, basically nowhere else do I ever see that in, in ID. In general, for most patients with a native valve, I try to avoid and most can get away without getting an aminoglycoside. So the situations where it's recommended are if there's a strep that has a relatively higher MIC for penicillin. In those cases, I usually just treat with ceftriaxone and avoid the whole uh, mess of that. And then for enterococci, we usually use two drugs, ampicillin plus an aminoglycoside or plus ceftriaxone. Don't ask me why the ceftriaxone works. It's something 
like hocus pocusy <laughs> that I once knew at some point in my <laughs> life, but um, uh, it's safer and seems to work just as well. Um, when you start talking about prosthetic valves, the aminoglycosides come back, and that is when I have used them before, um, especially for staphylococcal endocarditis, and then also for staph endocarditis of a prosthetic valve will often have rifampin added as well. And that's like a, you know, biofilm dissolver, at least in theory. So I think a lot of the regimens are kind of like old-timey seeming to at least me, because I think a lot of the research on it is kind of (laughs) old-timey. And uh, a lot of the newer research is like looking at just throwing it all the way and giving people oral antibiotics like you kind of have been hinting at. So we may not, we may never get a clear answer on that stuff, but I think in general we can usually and try to prefer to avoid an aminoglycoside if we can. Do you think we need to delve into for methicillin sensitive Staph aureus any any comments on nafcillin, oxacillin versus cefazolin? Is that too much of a can of worms? Um. I don't know. I guess I I had like a couple of antibiotic pitfalls and that's like the number one is actually even a little more basic, which is like switching someone to Vanco because they have a fever while they're on oxacillin and continue to have MSSA bacteremia. So I don't know if uh, I, I can talk about the. I get. I got you. So they're they're like they're they have endocarditis, which is a condition which is known to cause recurrent fevers and might take a while to clear. So don't like get skittish and switch them off the, the agent, the nafcillin oxacillin, which has a better, is better at killing bacteria, right? Than vancomycin. Is that why? Or can you talk about the reasoning there? Yeah, it's basically, um, you know, switching someone off of the preferred evidence-based therapy for their particular syndrome and infection in an organism um, in favor of something that is just sort of not known to be as effective. And so for methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, uh, anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam, either oxacillin, nafcillin, or cefazolin are really considered to be the treatments of choice. And vancomycin use, more when it's used like for the duration of treatment, um, has been shown pretty strongly to be associated with increased mortality. You know, if you switch someone to vancomycin for a day or two, probably not the end of the world, but I think it's also just sort of a teaching point that often we pass on to the the primary team, which is to say, you know, you're kind of missing the forest through the trees. I don't know the saying, something like yeah. that. But basically that, you know, <laughs> the problem is this person has like one of the most fatal infections that you can have, staph aureus endocarditis. And anything that happens more often than not is probably a, a complication of that rather than like, you know, some pseudomonas infection coming out of nowhere. <laughs> so you switch them to, you know, cefepime. <laughs> yeah. It's possible, but I think it's important just to keep your eye on the ball. I guess that's the figure of speech sure. I was looking for. So we, we've talked a little bit about choice of antibiotics. I think a lot of that's going to be working with your ID colleagues and, and just looking it up based on the organisms. I think it's too much to try to memorize the list on air here. And uh, But vancomycin is an okay first choice, you told us, if someone has gram-positive cocci in their blood. Um, but we might tailor it specific to the organism Paul, there is a aptly named trial that I I know you love. I know you're a big trial head. So sure, uh, yeah. did you want to, I'll let you ask the question. 
<laughs> sure. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I assume you're referring to the poet trial, which I'm not sure how happily named it is, but you know, it's, it's certainly named. I don't think anyone would argue that. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I guess that there has been scuttlebutt around transitioning to oral antibiotics for, it feels like years at this point now. And there's a lot of wild enthusiasm for it, which I think understandably just because logistically the sending people out with pick lines can sometimes be a challenge. And it's just, it's, there's many, many potential burdens involved with sort of long-term anti-intravenous uh, antibiotic therapy. So where, where are we, are we ready just to sort of maybe even start with Bactrim and discharge people on oral therapy? Is that, is that what we're doing these days? Or what is, what is the current conversation looking like now in terms of if and when we can transition to, to oral antimicrobials? Yeah, I just, I find the biggest like pill bottle I can find and I stuff it with, <laughs> you know, six weeks of antibiotics and, uh, give it to them in a little to-go bag. <laughs> Perfect. The main points, I think, to think about with POET trial are, I think of it more as like a efficacy trial. Like it shows that biologically this can work in a selected population when we're sort of talking about just like throwing big bottles of pills at patients that want to leave the hospital. We're a little bit, you know, stepping outside of the uh, realm of, of how the study did things. So everyone in the study was required to get at least 10 days of IV antibiotics, and the median was actually 17. So to be honest, I think most of the people I see with endocarditis do not even stay in the hospital that long. Um, so that would sort of automatically uh, exclude the, some of the people I see. And so people are randomized to these not commonly used combinations of antibiotics at uh, doses that I've personally never used before. So like, levofloxacin plus amoxicillin four times a day at a one gram dose. And and patients were, you know, discharged, but they were followed very closely. They mentioned in the methods like following people two to three times a week. Some they did all these studies checking like blood levels of the antibiotics, really intensive follow-up that um I have never seen for anybody <laughs> in the United States in, in any real way, shape or form outside of maybe a VA that I worked at once. But, um, you know, I think the biggest issue is just making sure that this is not like a license to just give people a big bottle of pills and, uh, you know, give them a good handshake farewell. So there's sort of this movement in OPAT clinics, which are sort of the outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy program that we do in ID to really integrate oral antibiotics into that rather than sort of having it be this other thing, like the theory being that it needs more intensive follow-up than IV antibiotics because you really want to make sure people are taking their meds. You really want to make sure they're not getting worse um, and want to keep keep a close eye on them. At the same time, I think personally in my uh, practice, it makes me feel a lot more comfortable and like just not like I'm crazy to step people down. I'm thinking more like even in the last few days of IV antibiotics, like I don't know if any of you have seen people who, you know, get a pick placed for like four days of antibiotics. That <laughs> yeah. so just seems like absurd. And like, okay, you know, they probably don't need any more. You could probably just stop four days early, but, you know, it makes us feel good to give a couple of days of a highly orally bioavailable antibiotic. And um, I think we can maybe give a link to two really good articles from Brad Spellberg on this topic that came out recently, um, sort of like a meta-analysis. And one of them's like a review article, just sort of telling you exactly which are the regimens that have been studied, at what dose, for what organisms, um, just to make sure we're not extrapolating too far from, from what the evidence shows at this point. And then I think, you know, for people who are leaving early, 
from the hospital, like a patient-directed discharge, also known as against medical advice discharge by some, definitely makes me feel like, okay, if they take all these antibiotics, they'll probably do okay. And certainly we should be giving them antibiotics anyways, just to try to reduce as much harm as we can in, in the situation where people can't stay for IV therapy. I think that probably transitions nicely into, you, you mentioned up front that you care for a lot of patients who inject drugs. And uh, Enzo, we didn't give that history with him. But if he was someone who injected drugs, how might your treatment approach differ? And I'm not sure if you wanted to mention the situations where people are leaving the hospital early, but if you, if you wanted to just mention any different paradigms when you're approaching it in that population. Yeah, I think from like a framework standpoint, the approach is sort of similar to, to anything we do for any patient, which is sort of like matching the treatment to the patient in front of us with their, you know, values and and goals and what what they want and what makes them most comfortable. I think the first step is sort of addressing their acute symptoms when they come into the hospital. Also recognizing that most patients who inject drugs have been probably trying to put off coming to the hospital really out of uh, intense fear and just many, many, many negative experiences with the healthcare system. So I think just being really sensitive to the fact that like this is already, by the time you see them on uh, whatever word of cash lack or in the ER, like it's already most likely been a uh, traumatic experience and they're probably physically feeling very poorly depending on what drug they use. But let's talk about opioids primarily in this case. So I think treating pain, treating withdrawal quickly and really forcefully to make sure that their symptoms get a lot better. Um, and I think that's going to really allow them to be involved in their care a lot more. And uh, you know, I'll refer to your excellent episodes with Melissa Weimer, where she talks a lot about sort of managing people who use substances in the hospital. And I think she has a lot of great tips about managing pain and withdrawal and you know all the nuances of buprenorphine, methadone, and the other um, options that we have. From the infectious disease standpoint, you know, I think we know that patients who inject drugs usually have more advanced disease, especially with staph aureus, just because they have often been putting off coming in longer. So making sure that we're doing an extra close look for metastatic sites of infection, making sure that we're doing anything we can to reduce the burden of infection with source control procedures. And again, you know, if someone is going to die from endocarditis, if they don't get a valve replacement, that's really a no-brainer. You know, you can't help someone if they're they're not with us anymore. So that's, I think, not really a question there, in my opinion, that we should be helping replace valves and whatnot in, in those situations. Unfortunately, it's usually more murky and just sort of a, a lot more messy and complicated than that, the decision about valve replacement or when there's sort of a borderline indication. I think from an antibiotic standpoint, besides the different slightly different uh, group of organisms you see. There's not a whole lot different. I guess some tips to think about are most of these patients have really good renal function, and it's often really hard to get a therapeutic vancomycin trough yes. level. And so that might be a reason to jump a little bit sooner to sort of a second-line agent for, for MRSA bacteremia or endocarditis. You know, the other benefit is that a lot of the, you know, most of these patients are really healthy and oftentimes can tolerate uh, stuff that other patients can't, sometimes like can live pretty normal lives with a, a more injured valve than the average person with lots of other medical conditions. Um, I 
tend to feel like they tend to tolerate oral antibiotics a little bit better and in my experience have been pretty adherent to treatment as long as, you know, they have a friendly ID doctor or addiction or primary care physician, you know, in their ear kind of keeping in touch after they leave the hospital. Are you saying that you, uh, if these, let's say somebody wants to leave, I mean, oftentimes, even if you're addressing their substance use, giving them nicotine patches and buprenorphine or methadone, the patients still, you know, they just don't like being in the hospital and they may leave. Are, are you of the mindset to, if you know the organism, giving them something oral, if there's an oral option to, you know, it, because it's better than nothing, whether it's trimsulfa or linizolid or aquinolone? Yeah, I think definitely, absolutely, we should be giving oral antibiotics to people who are leaving, you know, before their treatment is completed. And, you know, I think, again, I kind of, rather than get into to the specifics, I would refer to some of those articles I mentioned with sort of the best oral options for the most part for these folks, um, or just for any folks getting oral treatment of their endocarditis. Again, I think my my personal approach also is that, like, leaving the hospital early is not a uh, an abandonment of the healthcare system or that we should not be abandoning people just because they left the hospital. Um, unfortunately, the way our healthcare system is designed, we have like very, you know, specific inpatient and outpatient silos. And so if you have not, you know, showed up to your outpatient ID appointment, you're pretty much not getting taken care of by anyone in, in a lot of these cases. So um, I think it's really important for people who are providing low barrier addiction care, needle exchanges, primary care doctors like Dr. Paul Williams to um, be around to help people uh, manage these infections in the absence of, of infectious disease friends who are available. Paul, any comments? No, I, I wonder, David, if there's an article you might refer someone to that actually talks about an integrated care model that's been successful in the past. I don't want to, I'm not thinking of anything specific, but I feel like you might have some expertise <laughs> or some knowledge of, of something like that. <laughs> yes, Paul, I can uh, I can send you send you something to to take a look at, help you fall asleep tonight. <laughs> but um yes, I think you are referring to our uh integrated infectious disease and substance use treatment team that we have at Cashlack Super Southeast that um has been pretty successful in the sort of pilot phase so far and we're doing kind of exactly what I'm trying to describe here, which is sort of uh holding people's hand and being there with them throughout the episode rather than sort of being focused on, you know, inpatient, outpatient, and really sort of doing anything we can to help people get better with sort of a harm reduction mindset. Oftentimes that is continued drug use, but oral antibiotics. Um, sometimes it's residential addiction treatment with IV antibiotics and, you know, medications for opioid use disorder. So sort of about um, picking the right uh, little pieces from the menu to make a nice plan for patients. Yeah, it's super cool. You guys should be very proud of what you're doing. And I think one of the last questions before we get your take-home points was going to be, I think we kind of glazed over the HASEC organisms, culture-negative endocarditis. Can you just briefly mention, like, you know, when should we th think about culture-negative endocarditis? I, I can't say. I can remember maybe one case um, in the past several years, uh, but it's, it's not something I've seen too often, but I, I want to make sure I'm not missing it. Yeah. So I think in this case, you're going to have someone who you think has an infection, you've gotten an echo for whatever reason, and you see a vegetation. Um, and so that's sort of your diagnosis of culture negative endocarditis for the most part. 
first step is good time to call your infectious disease colleagues. Also good time to just get some more blood cultures, as you never know, depending on the situation, obviously. But um, there's a really great episode of the podcast Febrile um, that I listened to recently. And it's actually just all about this topic. So if you want to take a deep, deep dive into culture negative endocarditis, I can refer you there. But I'll just kind of briefly mention what uh, the the expert on that show, who's a friend of mine, Varun Fadke, mentioned. So he sort of categorizes things as uh, organisms that should have grown, but they didn't because someone got antibiotics, um, which is probably the most common cause of, quote, culture negative endocarditis. Then there are um, sort of organisms that can grow, but require some special media, special techniques that, you know, is way beyond what anything any hospitalist should ever want to know, including what type of auger to use for Bartonella and what culture environment it has. And then there's a couple of organisms that really just don't grow, um, including Coxiella and the organism that causes Whipple's disease. And then Varun did not mention one fourth category that he taught me which is the non-infectious culture-negative endocarditis. So basically a thing on the valve that is not a growing organism. And there's a couple kind of weird things like people who have a pork allergy and have a pig valve in their heart can get kind of like some deposits on there. Um, There's Libman Sachs endocarditis, I think, in people with lupus and then some other non-infectious stuff. But that's kind of the broad categories. One of these things that will like never, ever leave medical education is that the Hasek organisms, which I will not say the names of them, they are culture positive. They are not culture negative. They previously, you know, in old timey times were culture negative, but they pretty much grow in normal modern blood cultures. This is back when we were tasting urine um, for diabetes, that kind of stuff. And now we've, we've been passing. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to, I feel like I just came across something else recently that was like formerly known, all of those like, you know, people that are persona non grata anymore <laughs> who have things named after them who used to, everyone still says it's blank disease but now we call it <laughs> yeah, this right. formerly yeah, yeah, exactly. like just let it go let we it go help ourselves <laughs> yeah so yes hasek organisms culture positive they're a, a category of regular old plain endocarditis got it so i think i mean We've kept you for way longer than we than you had initially promised, or than we had initially promised you we'd keep you. So, uh, I'll ask you for some take home points, and I will profusely thank you for spending so much time with us and having such a great discussion. My pleasure. Beth has some some chopping to do later today, I'm sure, <laughs> or probably not tonight. <laughs> um, so, take home points. So. I had three points. My first was, uh, I think I kind of mentioned, peppered it throughout, but you can't diagnose endocarditis unless you do the testing for it. So getting blood cultures, getting a transthoracic echo, and then getting a transesophageal echo if if you kind of meet those criteria we discussed. And then don't forget, you can also do some of your other weirder tests for immunologic phenomenon as well if you want to be fancy and get your um, ophthalmoscope out. So second, I would say, is to summon your infectious disease and cardiothoracic surgery pals early on. From my experience, your ID fellow colleagues will be a lot more happy to see you, but still, everyone is going to contribute to the case and everyone's going to be really helpful and wonderful and improve patient care. And then I think the last piece I also mentioned a little bit earlier, which is just trying to convince yourself 
of a story of like why this is happening to this patient, which okay, that's kind of vague, goes along with anything in medicine at all. But but I think especially for, you know, kind of following the bacteria, you know, came out of the cat's mouth, went into the finger, then it went to the right side of the heart, and now we have vegetation, and now there's these things in the lung. So um, I think if you can have a really succinct and uh, complete story that you're probably doing a good job for your patient, and you should feel uncomfortable if you don't have a clear story Many times you don't, and you're just left feeling uncomfortable, but you should still try to figure out the ending. All right. We will fade that into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. The best part about that was I could actually watch Adam working himself up for it. So nicely done. <laughs> for strong work. Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest. Do you get it? Because it's Knowledge Food Digest. This is brilliant. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, and, it it's, and it's set up like a menu. Nora, just it's, chef's it's kiss, brilliant. Paul. Yeah. It's brilliant. A chef's kiss. Look at us. We're still doing it. But in any case, <laughs> it recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our executive producer, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who also happens to run our Twitter, to Maddie Maddog Morgan, who is on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And of course, how could I forget thanking Dr. Adam Borowski for writing and producing this episode. And a reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And I've been Dr. Adam Borowski. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.